name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, we ask your Holy Spirit to be with us and to inspire us, to help us to open our ears, to hear what you want us to hear, not so much what is said up here necessarily, but what you want each of us to hear in order to encourage us into a deeper relationship with you. So help us now to begin this new session of learning what does Paul really mean by all of the strange words and phrases that he uses. So give us the strength and the grace to open our minds and hearts. And we ask your blessing on everything that we do in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Today we're going to be beginning uh, a new series. As, uh, well, hello, Elisa. Nice to see you. Come and join us wherever you can here. We're going to be getting a new series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, we taught this uh, two or three or four years ago. I forgot just when. So we're going to do it a little differently this time. Uh, the emphasis is going to be not so much on what Paul is saying, because, as you know, Paul's letters can go on and on and on, you know. Uh, sometimes one sentence will take up a whole paragraph or sometimes a half a page. What we're going to do is take the important essence of these two very important letters and pull out the main themes, the main points, so that by the time that this session is over in ten weeks, which is the week before Thanksgiving, you will really understand what Galatians and Romans are all about. All right. The important things, and the reason I've chosen these two letters again, first of all, Romans has always been considered Paul's masterpiece, the greatest of all of his 13 letters. It is also the first theological writing of the Catholic Church. And that is very important that we kind of understand that. All right. The other thing is, these two letters discuss the reasons, the whys, and the wherefores of Christianity's departure from Judaism. And we're going to talk about that um, so that you understand. Over the years that I've been teaching, People have asked me occasionally, uh, when did the Catholic Church really start? Well, if you asked a Jesuit theologian, he would say, well, don't you know that the Catholic Church started on the first Pentecost Sunday? And I say, yes, you know, that's true. It started on the first Pentecost Sunday, and we call uh, Pentecost, the birthday of the church. But that really doesn't give you a lot of information. Um, so let's set that aside because uh, the old cliche is Rome wasn't built in a day. Well, neither was the Catholic Church. It took time for things to develop. It took time for uh, people to reason and understand why 
for example, why did Christ, if he was God, why did he have to die and die in such an ignominious way? The horrible death that he did. Why? There are reasons for that. But you see, when we talk about the birthday of the church, that doesn't really come out the answers. So what I want you to do is to look at, there's about a dozen letter words throughout these two letters that we're really going to emphasize so that you'll understand what they're all about. Does that make sense? I don't want to repeat or just read words. Because Paul's words, if you uh, take any one sentence, beautiful as they may be, sometimes you lose sight of what is the objective by the time you get to the end of one sentence. Now, for those of you who have been to the Mass this morning, I think the Gospel, uh, not the Gospel reading, but the, the first reading, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he goes into the, the great uh, discussion of love. What is love? Well, in today's society, you know, you talk about love, and the first thing you think about is sex. Well, that's not what Paul is talking about. Now, sex in the rightful place and time is included. But there's so much more to his meaning of the word love. And this is what we really want to get into understanding. So, And there are several other uh, points that I want to really bring out. Um, the whole idea of the separation of, Judah, of Christianity from Judaism is really part of God's plan of salvation. Now, let me set that aside for a moment. The one thing I want to make clear, I do not want to appear to be bashing or bad-mouthing Judaism or the Jewish people. There are a lot of good Jewish people just like there are a lot of bad Christian people, okay? So, you know, it kind of balances out in a way. What I want to talk about is the concept of what Judaism was, or Judaism was, at the time of Christ and before. For those of you who took our last class on the prophet Isaiah, actually it was both sessions, on the prophet Isaiah, or prophets, I should say, because there were three of them. Uh, there was a lot of um, criticism uh, by the prophets of the Jewish people and Judaism in general, and that was warranted and correct. So I don't have to go through all of that again. All right? But there are certain things that we do have to bring out. The whole idea that Judaism was good and right uh, and proper and was blessed by God to a point for its time. And then as Paul realizes, after his rather unusual and miraculous conversion, that all changed. Paul was almost a fanatic, you might say, up until the time of his unusual conversion. Uh, he was in pursuit of Christians 
throughout the whole Roman Empire so that he could bring them in and put them in jail or punish them or persecute them or kill them. Uh, you know, he became a fanatic, you might say, because he was such a devout Jew. And then Christ touches him in a very special way, and all of that changes. But there are some things that the Bible is sort of misleading, and that's what I want to start out with. Because we have to understand who is Paul, and where does he come from? Where does he get all of the information that he delivers in these great letters. He talks about, for one thing, the idea of his gospel as opposed to somebody else's gospel. Well, when when he talks about his gospel, that always kind of makes me, pardon the expression, curl my hair. (laughs) Because the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John hadn't been written yet. In fact, by the time of Christ, uh, of Paul's writings, there hadn't been anything, to our knowledge, written about the Catholic Church or Christianity in general. So what's Paul talking about? See, that's what you have to understand. Where is he coming from? Because without understanding the background and the history behind many of these letters, you're not really going to get the full information. So this class will be partly on Catholic or Christian history rather than the words that Paul is using in his letters. All right. For those of you who have your Bibles with you, and I would appreciate your bringing a Bible, all right? You will be getting the letters that we are going to be covering in the little book as part of your registration, but I would still like you to bring your own Bible because we are going to be talking about portions of other letters or other portions of the Bible. For example, turn to... uh, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9. Remember that there are 73 books within the Bible. 46 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. They all are connected. You ever see a Rubik's Cube where you can turn it in many different directions, you know, to get all the colors, but they all hook together? That's sort of uh, illustration of what the Bible is all about. And part of your handout will kind of explain that. The back side of this handout will explain that. And I'll go into that a little later. Okay? But right now, I'd like you to turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9. And I'm going to read a little of this for those of you who don't have a Bible with you, naughty, naughty. Um, 
only to emphasize, and this of course is where we begin. Who is Paul? Alright. Now Saul, which was his Greek, uh, I'm sorry, which was his Jewish name. Remember, Paul was half Jewish and half Roman. His mother was a Jew, his father was a Roman. He was born outside of uh, Israel. He was born in what is today Turkey, or actually in Tarsus, which was a Cilicia, a province of the Roman Empire at the time. Okay, it says now Saul, still breeding, breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, that is the followers of the Lord, went to the high priest, that is the high priest was the main ruler of Judaism at this time and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, in Syria, that if he could find any men or women who belonged to the way, this is what Christianity was originally called way back, the way. Remember, Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's where that phrase comes from, the way. Belonging to the way. He might bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. On his journey, as he was nearing Damascus, a light from the sky suddenly flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The re- <coughs> Who are you, sir? The reply came. And this is when Paul was knocked off of his horse, you know, and this light shined all around him. And there were men with him. They saw the light but didn't hear the voice. Who are you, sir? The reply came. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. (coughs) Pardon me. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, for they heard the voice, but they could not see, they could see no one. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he drank, uh, he was unable to see, and he neither drank nor ate. There was a disciple in Damascus at the time named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is there praying, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, you, come and lay his hands on him, that he might regain his sight. But Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard from many sources about this man, what evil things he has done to your holy ones in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to imprison all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is a chosen instrument 
of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings and Israels, or Israelites, and I will show him what he will have to suffer for my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Saul, my brother, the Lord has sent me. Um, Jesus, who appeared to you on the way by which you came, and that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, things like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized, and when he had eaten, he recovered his strength. All right, now, you got the picture? Here is a guy who starts out on the road to Damascus with murderous intent of capturing all those who belonged to Christ in one way or the other. Remember, these were little house uh, churches, you might say, established all over uh, that region of the time. And Paul was such a fanatic Jew that he felt that all of these were enemies of Judaism. And so he's trying to corral them into uh, changing their ways, even to the point of persecution. So he is struck by Jesus Christ, and Jesus appears to him. This is an important element in his conversion, because it's the point where Jesus appearing to Paul as the authority to go forth. And it is the point by which Paul later, not in these letters, but later claims to be called an apostle. Remember the twelve apostles, the word apostle means one who is sent apart or set apart uh, for a special reason. The apostles were chosen out of all of the disciples of Jesus at one time. And they were the only official apostles. Sometimes other people, such as Timothy and Titus, are referred to as apostles, but technically they were not. All right? Um, It is just the twelve, and now Paul is claiming to be apostle because Christ appeared to him and commissioned him for a special purpose. All right. That's just sort of an aside. The point I want to get to, though, here is, as we read on, he stayed with, he stayed with, uh, some days with the disciples in Damascus. And he began at once to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. Well, that is totally misleading. Either, see, Luke wrote this, and either Luke was not aware, or for some reason or other, there is a big gap here. Because between the time of Ananias' being knocked off the horse, and that's where they get the uh, phrase, knocking some sense into a person, uh, my mother used to say that. <laughs> Between the time of being knocked off the horse and the conversion and the blindness for three days and so forth and so on, 
uh, he could not have gotten up automatically and started preaching and teaching because what was he going to preach and teach? He was so against the new way that obviously he knew nothing about it. And so he couldn't preach or teach. But you see, Luke has left out a big portion of something here. If we go to the letter to the Galatians, which we'll be talking about next week, but I want to advance a little bit into that. Okay. Let us go to the letter of the Galatians, the first chapter 15. Now, all of this is in your handout, and I ask you to review it at your leisure during this coming week. It says, But when God, whom from my mother's womb had set me apart, now, of course, in Galatians, this is at a later time, and under different circumstances, he's beginning to realize that this was God's holy will and role for Paul right from the beginning. It says, But when God who from my mother's womb had set me apart and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him to the Gentiles. Reveal his son is referring back to this apparition on the road to Damascus that I just read. I did not immediately consult flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. That somewhat contradicts uh, Luke's statement in chapter 9 of Acts. Rather, I went to Arabia and then to Damascus. Okay? He went to Arabia. Now, we don't know where in Arabia. My gut feel is Mount Sinai, but there is nothing to prove or disprove that. Okay? Um and there, he had specific revelations. Okay. If you go to a few pages before that, to Corinthians chapter 2, verse, I mean chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12, now, He's writing this much later, but he's talking about his time in Arabia. I must boast, not that it is profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know someone in Christ who, 14 years ago, so he's writing this 14 years after the event, all right? Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. In other words, he's talking about a vision. And he isn't sure whether it was just spiritual or both spiritual and physical. I was caught up to the third heaven. And I know that this person, meaning himself, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, was caught up into the, into paradise and heard ineffable things which no one could utter. About this person, again himself, I will boast, 
But about myself, I will not boast. In other words, he's separating, you might say, the old from the new. Although if I could, I should wish to boast, I would not be foolish. For I would be telling the truth. But I refrain so that no one, I, want to, I don't want to go on to belabor that, because it is the revelations that were given to Paul in this time in Arabia. Because as you will read later in Galatians, he never spent much time with any of the apostles. So where did he learn all of this information about the death and resurrection of Christ, the Last Supper, the meaning of the death and resurrection of Christ, about the Eucharist, about the Holy Spirit. Where did he learn all of those things? It was in these revelations. So he spent, and theologians say, somewhere around three years in Arabia before he went back to Damascus, and that's where he began his preaching and teaching. But the infusion of knowledge that he received during this time is what we really want to talk about. Not only that, but the change that it created within him. Let me give you, or let me ask you a question here. If sometime, like say, during the night, God awakened you and told you to do something, to go to somebody, say he went, he told you to go to the bishop and ask the bishop to do something, but it was your job to do it, what would you do? Think about it for a minute. God himself is calling upon you to carry a message and a request to the bishop. Isn't this something that you would just really want to be very forceful about? And, you know, you get up there to the bishop and his secretary says, well, he's too busy. He can't see you. Uh, and you're saying, I've got to see him, you know, I've got to see him. Uh, and you do everything you possibly can. And then the bishop says, well, I'm not so sure. How do I know? You know, I won't, uh, I'm not going to hurry on what you tell me. I'm not going to accept what you tell me. How do I know? If you think about it, um, Juan Diego's request to the bishop was exactly that. The Blessed Mother appeared to Juan Diego in Guadalupe and asked him to go to the bishop and have a church built on that particular spot where she appeared. And the bishop says, no way, buddy. Uh, I'm not going to just believe you. Uh, you know, and you're asking me to do something that's virtually impossible. But finally... After the signs were given, he did. And this is the same kind of thing that <coughs> Paul is faced with. He comes back to Damascus, and first of all, they're afraid of him. But 
what has happened in the meantime, and now we're jumping ahead 14 or 15 years, when the book of Galatians is written. All right, the letter of the Galatians, I should say. All right, Galatians was written to the people of southern, what we call Turkey today. All right, and we don't know whether it was a specific town or the whole region or what. But what happened was that Christianity has now begun to spread throughout the Middle East. But that doesn't mean that it was the Catholic Christianity that we know today. That didn't really begin uh, until much later. What really started out after Christ's death and resurrection were the apostles spread out into different regions according to their commission and their instructions in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Jesus tells them to go forth, baptizing all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things, and I'll be with you, and so forth and so on. All right? So, the apostles, except for James, John, and Peter, who stayed in Jerusalem to continue ministering to the Jewish converts at the time, and the idea was to convert the Jewish people into accepting Christianity and absorbing that and going on. But that didn't happen, uh, as we know. And we'll get into more of that as to why that didn't happen next week. But I'm trying to give you a lot of overview here so that when we get into the details a little bit, it'll make a little more sense. Excuse me. The important point is this conversion idea of Paul's and the information that he received during these revelations or visions or whatever you want to call them. And they are referred to quite often in all of Paul's letters, one way or the other but more so in Corinthians. But you have to keep that in mind because that's the emphasis behind Paul's forceful efforts in trying to get people to realize what's going on. All right. Now, what happened to get the letter to the Galatians written was that some... Jewish converts from Jerusalem started preaching and teaching that the Gentiles who were coming into Christianity, and by the way, they were coming in droves, uh, had to go through the Jewish rite of circumcision, that is, the men. And, oops, that's painful. Okay? Besides, it was sort of against their the Christians' traditions and customs. So you had a cultural clash beginning. And it started in this area of southern Turkey. These Jewish people came 
out, thinking that they were authorized when they were not, and started preaching this new idea of Gentile converts having to uh, adopt the Jewish ways and the Jewish traditions and customs and live by them. And Paul said, no, that's not necessary. Peter said the same thing earlier. Remember in Acts, there's the vision of Peter receiving this idea of a sheet coming down with all kinds of animals in it, and including those that were considered unclean by the Jewish people. And he was told to, to slaughter and eat. And he said, oh, no, 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 that's, you know, forbidden to eat uh, those kinds of things. And the in the vision, he receives this message, what God has made is not forbidden. In other words, everything that God has made, every person is being acceptable to God. No longer is there a division or a separation of people as the Jewish people became. Not because they, not because God wanted them, but that was the drift that they got into on their own. And that was one of the reasons uh, why Christianity wanted to be separated from the Jewish people. Uh, that's a long story, which we'll get into more next week. Um, but nevertheless, they were creating these Jewish, uh, we call them Judaizers. Uh, your author in this book will call them uh, or something else, not quite as... Um, dramatic, you might say. But nevertheless, they were creating a problem. And some of the some of the uh, converts from paganism or other religions began to accept this idea of adding the Jewish customs on, but they didn't like it. And it created a lot of problems. So Paul, in finding out this, decides that there has to be um, a meeting of all the church members, of all the apostles, particularly Peter, and so forth and so on. So, we go again to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15. Again, I'm giving you a lot of very quick overview so that when you get into this, you'll begin to see um, where we are headed. Says, beginning of chapter 15, Acts of the Apostles. Some who had come down, <clears throat> who had come down from Judea we're instructing the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the Mosaic practice, you cannot be saved. Because there arose no little dissension and debate by Paul and Barnabas with them, it was decided that Paul, Barnabas, and some of the others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and presbyters about this question. 
They were sent on their journey by the church, that is, by the leaders of the church in Galatia, all right, and passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, telling of the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, as well as the apostles and the presbyters, and they reported what God had done with them. But some of the party of the Pharisees, who had become believers, now that's important to remember, these are Pharisees who now converted over to Christianity, stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the Mosaic law. The apostles and the presbyters, that is, those ministering, that's where we get the word priest from today, met together to see about this matter. After much debate had taken place, Peter got up and said to them, My brothers, you are, well, you are well aware that from early days God made his choice among you that through my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness by granting them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. For by faith he purified their hearts. Why then are you now putting God to the test by placing on the shoulders of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors, that is the Jewish ancestors, nor we today, this is at the time of this writing, have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that they are. The whole assembly fell silent, and they listened while Paul and Barnabas described the signs and wonders God had worked among the Gentiles through them. After they had fallen silent, James, now this is James, the brother of John, responded, Listen to me. Simeon has described how God first concerned himself with acquiring from among the Gentiles a people for his name. The words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, After this I shall return and rebuild the fallen hut of David. For its ruins I shall rebuild it and raise it up again, so that the rest of humanity may seek out the Lord even all the Gentiles on whom my name is invoked. And thus the Lord who accomplished these things know from of old. Peter continues, It is my judgment, therefore, that we ought to stop troubling the Gentiles who turn to God, but tell them by letter to avoid pollution from idols, unlawful marriage, and the meat of strangled animals and blood. For Moses, for generations now, has had those who proclaim him in every town, as he has been read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And so they send a letter which sort of... But you see, this activity here is what 
actually starts this separation. Yes, sir. That's right. All right. Why? Yes. 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 Now, Paul was roughly 10 to 15 years younger than Christ. So you might say that all of this time period is happening perhaps as much as 20 to 30 years after Christ which has given time for all of these little churches to develop, okay? Most of these churches outside of Israel were non-Jewish people. Greeks, will call them, uh, in, in general. They could be virtually anything, but we'll, we'll call them Greeks, all right? So, the Greeks were concerned because they felt they didn't have to. And Paul now along with Peter's consent, Peter as the head of the apostles' consent, tells them they do not have to join and take it on. Why? And this is one of the reasons why. For those of you who have studied the Old Testament, and particularly the um, prophets that we just studied in the past year, Judaism started out as sort of a land-based or land-connected um, ideology, all right? Not a faith in, in the way we think of it. But it gradually grew over 2,000 years from the time of Abraham uh, and then Moses and David and all of the prophets, etc. It grew into a large faith-based ideology, but that faith was sort of land-based connected. The covenant that God made with Abraham had three main points. Descendants, land, and protection. That protection later included eternal life. But it was God's intent that the Jewish people that developed from the family of Abraham would eventually become this ideal community whose light would shine through all parts of the world. And that did not happen. As it developed, they felt that they were the chosen people and they were so exclusive that they withdrew into themselves and did not become this light to other nations. And that is not what God wanted. And even today, the Jewish people still will not go out and try to bring other people into the fold. They do not and never have sent, for example, missionaries out. They will accept somebody that wants to come in 
and convert to Judaism for whatever reason, but that is all. Then that person, once brought into and accepted, becomes a Jew in the eyes of the others, uh, but must obey all of the rules. And that is the problem. Their whole their whole idea of serving God is based on land-based rules and laws. They took the Ten Commandments and exploded them into 613 laws. I'm using that specific figure because that is the number of laws that they look upon and are mentioned in the Talmud, the Mishnah, and some of their other sacred books. But these were developed over a long period of time. And if you think about it, almost all of them have to do with some attachment to earth. Their idea and concept of a relationship with God uh, and their idea of a personal relationship with God is non-existent, then or now. And that is, of course, not what God wanted. God wanted the Jewish people to become this ideal community that would be so loving and so uh, perfect in a in a human sense uh, that it would shine out to all of the surrounding nations. And like I said, that didn't happen. Never has. And therefore, the idea of a redeemer having to come and redeem mankind could not come out of those people except by the fact of God himself giving them something that was perfect. And who could that be? Or what could that be? These people had nothing that was perfect. They themselves started to go off and say, okay, God, we'll do whatever you tell us, but we're going to do it our way. And that is not what God wants. Submission to the ideas and concepts of God is what he wants. That is what love is all about. The idea that love, as mentioned in uh, the first reading in today's Mass, is all about biblical love, or agape love as we call it, uh, meaning unconditional love. We'll go and I'll give you a handout uh, in a week or so on that subject of what is biblical love. But that didn't happen among the Jewish people. They did not love, in a biblical sense, those people outside of their own community. Remember, even in Jesus' time, there are several stories about how the Pharisees uh, condemned Jesus for going into a Gentile's home. Oh, that was forbidden. You can't do that. Or talking to a Gentile woman. Oh, no. You know the story of the woman at the well in John's Gospel. That was a big no-no. You can't do that. And that is not what Christianity is all about. And so many Christians I've heard, oh, well, I can't talk about uh, my religion in, in mixed company or in, in, a, out, you know, in a large group. 
And I say, why not? I faced somebody here just recently. They were saying, well, I'm thinking about becoming a Catholic, um, but I'm just not quite there yet. I said, why? Well, I got this reason. I've got this little hang up and so forth and so on. So we have the same problems here. And that's one of the problems that Christianity is faced with. The whole idea of Christianity is to be a light to the nations, all the nations, all people. And if we individuals, every one of you, is not doing that in some way, then you're wrong. You are not fulfilling your role. That is what God wants of you. That is what God wants of us in general. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to go <clears throat> down to the corner of J and First Street, you know, in Old Sacramento and start preaching on a soapbox. Oh, there's already somebody there? Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. In other words, somebody beat me. Huh? Okay. Well, you know, and that's good, Louisa. I take this very seriously, as you can imagine. But there's no reason why we can't have fun doing it, okay? In studying our faith. We should enjoy it. So, if you have a little quip that you want to uh, throw in there, or, uh, you know, questions that um, are important to you, get them out. I have no problem with you asking questions right in the middle of a lecture, provided they're on the subject that we're talking about. Okay. All right. Yes, Lou? Yes, yes. Yeah, Lou's point is correct. Um, there was a great deal of dissension and tension uh, um, between those who are converting from Judaism to Christianity. And then it was made more so by Gentiles converting to Christianity and trying to come into the synagogues. Because remember, we didn't have Catholic churches like this in the first century. Uh, we didn't have masses like this in the first century. We had the breaking of the bread ceremony, but it was limited to the essential part of the consecration uh, by simple prayers and the communion. Okay. The church really didn't start forming as a community until the fourth century. And that is because we had to get through all of that persecution and dissension and recognition uh, of the Jewish people versus the Christian people as having equal rights. And that didn't happen until the Edict of Milan in the year 313 A.D., signed by the Emperor Constantine, who finally uh, converted after a great amount of prayers by his mother, St. Helena. All right. uh, and so after 
313 in A.D., we had the first ecumenical council, all right, in 335 in Nicaea, to define a lot of these differences that cropped up, as you just said, uh, among all of these little uh, house churches, okay? Uh, prior to the Edict of Milan, there was a great deal of persecution, first by the Jewish people themselves against the Christians, because the Jewish people felt that they were slandering and desecrating uh, the temple. Well, the temple was gone in 70 AD, but the synagogues that grew up all over the place, the synagogue system, as we had talked about last time, began in Babylon because there was no temple, and yet the synagogues began as uh, houses of study first, and then became houses of prayer uh, when the temple was no longer in vogue. And the churches then that grew up took the same format of being established in the various houses, but the understanding of the central role of the Mass, for example, and the purpose of Christ's death and resurrection. Remember, the cross itself was not a symbol of Christianity until the 4th century. It was looked upon as, uh, it was looked upon with disgrace and embarrassment. How could our loving God die in the same way that the worst uh, criminal possible was executed. And so we're going to talk more about that next week. Um, but the whole idea of Christianity had to grow up little by little and the understanding of all of the actions of Christ had to be explored and uh, verified and prayed over and, you know, given and take that's one thing that the Catholic Church cannot accept and, and will not accept is a teaching by one individual that differs from everybody else. That person is put down immediately if it is uh, contrary to the teachings of the church. And that's one thing when I teach, I have to verify Virtually everything I say and do, except a little jokes once in a while. Uh, because, and it's important to me, it's important to me that I be accurate and give you accurate information. Chet? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know about whether the, you know, whether it was 65 or more or less. But nevertheless, yes, you're right. The, the first many, many popes. Uh, oh, by the way, Father MacDonald got into a real fight one time with uh, somebody when he said uh, that St. Peter wasn't the first pope. 
<clears throat> what he meant was, yeah, and you know, Father McDonald wasn't always clear in what he was saying, or he would have a little bit of twist to it. And, uh, and of course, in this case, what he really meant was that Peter wasn't called Pope because that word did not develop uh, for several centuries afterwards, okay? And it comes from the Italian for Papa, all right, uh, Father. Um, but, oh, this woman just took off on him, you know, and then he didn't know how to handle it, so uh, it became a little funny, I thought, but he didn't think so at the time. Okay. Yes, Jean. You're right. Yes. Uh, if you start following and worshiping laws, you are not worshiping God. Okay? That's a sort of a broad general statement, and I often get in trouble by saying it, but that is true. Now, what I would like to kind of talk about is the difference between the 613 Jewish laws, which include all the dietary laws and the holidays and what you can do and what you can't do and so forth on those versus what Betty just referred to as the the Catholic or Christian laws. Actually, look at it this way. No ideology, no business can um, exist and function and fulfill its obligation without structure, okay? It has to have structure. And I look upon the structure of the Catholic Church being its doctrine and dogma. These are the things that we believe in. What the new Pope is trying to get us to see is, as long as you believe and you follow whatever this structure is, how you do it is not that important. Um, I once got into a heated discussion, you might say, with a lady, and I was talking about helping people, how sometimes we have to, uh, some of our actions have to override custom. And I was saying, supposing uh, you are backing out of your driveway to go to the last Mass on Sunday. This would be the 5 o'clock Mass, I believe, here on Sunday. And your neighbor comes over waving. Can you help me come? My child is choking, and i got to get him or her to the hospital immediately. And you say, oh, no, I'm sorry, I have to go to the last Mass. That woman started arguing with me, saying that you have to find a mass to go to. I said, you've lost the point. Love means that there are times when you have to override that and make some common sense decisions. And that's what the new Pope is trying to get us to see. So, yes... We have a lot of rules and regulations. I prefer them to uh, prefer to call them structure. All right, what we believe in and 
why we believe in it is far more important than how we follow them out. I remember years ago, before Vatican II, and I do go back way before Vatican II, but uh, how at Easter time, or rather during Lent, uh, the priest would spend his whole uh, Sunday sermon on what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. And now when I look back, I think, what difference does it make? You know, As long as you do something to remember what Lent is all about, and do it in a positive way, not a negative way. Oh, I'm going to give up candy. Well, I don't like a lot of candy anyway, so that's easy, you know. Uh, or I'm, you know, going to give up broccoli like, you know, <coughs> President Bush didn't like broccoli, so he gives up broccoli for Lent. Well, yeah, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. It's the idea of Lent is a time period when you do something special, primarily for someone else, but also helping you, to remember what Lent is all about and the coming passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. Okay. So, structure is far more important than rules. Okay. All right. Any other questions now? Yes? In the early days, yes, good and important point. When the Jews converted to Christianity, they still continued. And this, you know, when you read the Acts, the early part of the Acts of the Apostles, that's rather evident. They continued to go to the temple. But the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans who stepped in because the Jewish people were persecuting the Christians and the Romans wanted to squash this persecution. They didn't care whether you were Christian or Jewish. They wanted to stop that. Well, in the process of stopping that, they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple along with it. All right. Now, the temple and the destruction of the temple was God's way of indicating that his first covenant was now withdrawn from the Jewish people. And it was turned over and given to Christians who accepted Christ. And that is why in our Mass, when the priest holds up the chalice of the precious blood at the consecration, and he says, this is the blood of the new and eternal covenant, that's what he's referring to. So we call it the second or the eternal covenant. That differs from the first covenant which was made way back with Abraham and renewed down through the ages through Moses and David and so forth and so on because that went back to a land-based covenant between God and his people. And that was right because of of what God was trying to do. He established a community through whom he was going to impart his word, which should have taken those people into a new level of interaction with each other based on love. 
And it did to a point. But unfortunately, outside influences crept in um, and destroyed much of that, all right, so that they closed up rather than opening the doors to all of the uh, surrounding nations. They closed up and became an exclusive society or community and would not allow their people. For years and years and years, uh, they were not allowed to marry outside of their own tribe. Remember the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, they were not allowed to marry outside their own tribes. And then that was expanded a little bit uh, to marry outside of the Jewish community. But even today, in a Hasidic uh, Jewish household or family, if one of the members goes out and marries a Christian, oy vey. You know, that means that that person is no longer part of that church, of that family. Uh, and that still is in existence. I think it's breaking down a lot, but then the whole idea of uh, Judaism is breaking down as well with the Reformed and the conservative uh, groups that are now changing. I have had uh, years ago some very close Jewish friends lived right across the street from us and they would invite us to all of their many parties. And so I got to know them quite well. Uh, in fact, my wife and I, uh, when one of their uh, member, household members died right at Thanksgiving time, they were then forbidden to do any cooking for a whole week. So my wife and I prepared the Thanksgiving dinner, making sure we observed all the kosher laws, uh, and they were very grateful for it. But they would invite us to many of their parties, and they would serve ham and bacon and salami and so forth. And I'd say, hey, hey. And of course, I could talk to her that way. Kiki, what's the matter with you? This is uh, pork. And she said, no, it isn't. It's ham and bacon. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and that's true. Uh, as I said earlier, that was a sign the destruction of the temple. Because you see, to the Jewish people, God was in the temple, but he wasn't outside. So what happened in the temple was, you know, pure and clean. What happened outside was none of his business. And so, with that in mind, when God uh, realized, or when Actually, I should say, when the Jewish people rejected God himself in the form of Jesus Christ and put him to death, after 2,000 years of preparing for this event of the coming of Christ and now rejecting him when he's there, God withdraws from the Jewish people the covenant that he made way back. Yes. And the destruction of the temple is in recognition of that withdrawal. And it is then transferred to Christians. Now, what? it's not the same covenant, though. It is a new covenant based on what? One thing. Eternal life through acceptance of Jesus Christ. That's all. 
that's a big hole, believe me. All right? So, the whole idea of the second covenant is a spiritual covenant. A reward that comes only through our efforts of accepting Christ. Now, what does that mean? Paul has taken all of these Jewish laws and the words of Christ and boiled them down into two. Love of God and love of neighbor. If we follow that to the very best of our ability, then we have fulfilled all the law. You'll see that written right in Romans chapter 13. All right. Love of God and love of neighbor. But what is love? All right. We'll get into that next week or the following week. In fact, in the following weeks, we are going to be talking about these particular points. More so than the individual words that Paul is using in these letters. However, you have to read that to get back to understand the comments and the explanations that I'm going to give you. All right. Justification. The word justification is confusing to many people. And it differed in the way Paul is using it 2,000 years ago from what it means today. But justification is extremely important. The word redemption. Expiation. E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. Expiation. Faith. Faith. Freedom. Baptism. This is for boys and girls. The cross and death of the God-man, Jesus. The cross and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, really. Remember that what Paul taught was really about Christ, his death and resurrection, and what it meant. And that's all he had to go on. The word good news, from which we get the word gospel, very important at this particular time. The word suffering in connection with the persecutions and the sufferings of Christ. And lastly, the word love in a biblical sense. If you understand the biblical meaning of those words, you will have accomplished a great deal and your time will have been well spent. I hope together we can accomplish that. Let's end with a prayer and we will take up registration after this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, 
We ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forth trying to understand all of these things that we have talked about today and will continue to be discussing as we go forth. Help us to have our efforts not be in vain, but to truly sink from our minds to our hearts so that we come closer to you through the actions that you have asked us, asked of each of us. So we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on each of us and our families. And we just pray and thanks, give you thanksgiving in all things. In Jesus' name.